Hi-ho, everybody out in Radio Land. This is Tom Cito, Disney animator, historian, and all-around wise guy. And you are listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney. With your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Ho, 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 ho. And welcome into the show. Skull Rock Podcast, where every week, Dave Bossert and I talk about all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films and pop culture films, theme park attractions, performances, books, 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 music, and much more. I'm Al John Go, one of your co-hosts. I am a musician, a radio guy, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars and pop culture fan. And you can email me at aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm your other co-host and pal, Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I have to tell you, Al John, I love getting emails from people. And we're getting emails from people all over the world, which is unbelievable. You know, this podcast has uh, really just been resonating with folks and we have a terrific audience, lots of kind comments coming in. And uh, I'm looking forward to today's show because we're going to have our friend, John Canemaker, the Academy Award winning filmmaker and author, artist, animator, uh, teacher. Uh, he's going to be back with us uh, today uh, talking about books. And I'm it. happy to say this is our annual book show. I love it. I can't wait. I can't wait to check that out. Um, another thing, and this is new to you, Dave. Um, we have been listed in the top Disney podcast rankings. What? Yes. I didn't even tell you before the show, but oh my God. Uh, I well, wanted, wanted to, to capture the absolute surprise. I wanted to capture right the absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely the top <laughs> surprise um, in the top 100 Disney podcast, best Disney podcast to follow. Um, we are on the list and we are in at number 13, Dave with a bullet. Oh, lucky 13. That's what I love, my friend. <laughs> lucky thir- and, and, you know, it's unbelievable that we're uh, so high up on, on a list of 100 uh, that, uh, I mean, we've only been on the air for a little over a year. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to have to share. I'm going to have to share the link with you. Um uh, on a uh, on the chat here, but I'm going to be promoting this um, over over on our social media, so you can check yeah. that out. But well, uh, I I think that's fantastic. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So please, I really uh, do. Yeah. So thank you everyone for that. We do appreciate that, and I have to also say that uh, our listenership is up. We do appreciate that, Dave. I, I try to keep you updated, but I always. Um, you know, within work, I tend to forget, but I'm calling up uh, some numbers here and uh, I'm going and, and, to. And by the way, while you're doing that, Al yeah. John, I just mm-hmm. want to convey a little story. Okay. And, and why I said lucky 13, because when I started working at the Walt Disney Company at Disney Animation Studios, right? Mm-hmm. I was in Office 13 in A Wing. 
<laughs> of the original animation building on the Burbank studio lot. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And then my phone number, the extension, my phone extension in room 13, office 13, my phone extension was 1331. What? A radar number, <laughs> you know, re reads the same front to back, back wow. to front. And, uh, and, and also I was one of 13 people who graduated from the 13th class at Cal arts. What? And yeah, I could just keep going on with 13 popping up all the time. I mean, it's craziness, but that's why I say lucky 13. I'm glad we made the, the 13th spot on that list. That is amazing. So yeah. the 13 really does uh, you know, hold a lot of uh, meaning for you. Yeah, it does. And I'm just going to add this as one more entry in my 13 book, you know, where it says we, for, for the first time, we made a list of the top, is it the top Disney podcasts? Yes. And we're at number 13. We're at number 13. Yeah. I just it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's crazy, it's so, right? So, so, so amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to share some uh, quick numbers, um, you know, for you, but um, it looks like, um, and this is from Spotify. So we released uh, 4,800, uh, 4,084 4, minutes of our podcast across 43 episodes this year. And 38% uh, of our fans listen to us, Dave, and, and I'm going to keep this in mind because we may change our <laughs> how we're releasing our podcast, but between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m., making it the most popular time to, for them to listen to our show. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, and we are being, um, let's see, I think there was a global thing here. Hold on a second. I'm, I'm scrolling through the different... Uh, the different graphics here. Are we in 172 countries? Uh, we're in quite a bit. <laughs> I was going to say 34 of our fans listen to us more than any other podcast. So God bless our fans um, wow. for, for listening to us. Um, but yeah, we are a global entity, Dave. We are global. Yes. We're absolutely global. So this is just a wonderful, um, wonderful news. Thank you, Spotify. Thank you, Anchor. And we Apple are so the Apple everybody and everybody is, yeah. else, you know, um, Amazon and all that. So thank you all for all of your support and uh, just continued listenership and sharing the show and all of the industry friends that uh, you and I both made uh, that continue to listen and share the show on their socials yeah. as well. And, and, you know, the one thing I would say to our audience is, you know, send us those questions, send us comments and also send us suggestions. What would you like to hear about? Is there, is there a particular topic you want? Do you want a certain guest to come on? You know, let us know what you'd like because, you know, we're here, uh, we're entertaining ourselves, but we're also here to entertain you. And uh, the more feedback we get, the better we can adjust and tweak the show. So here, here's here's a new stat for you, Dave. So okay. we're um, we are also loved in three new countries, six new countries. Okay, mm, so okay. Denmark, Portugal, yes. Norway, mm -hmm. Brazil, and the Netherlands. Wow. Well, hello to all of those folks out there. And Portugal is on my bucket list of places to go, by the way. I love so, Portugal. So, <laughs> so our, our people out in, in Portugal, um, I'm going to be coming to visit your country one of these days uh, oh. when things lighten up with this pandemic. Yeah. And I will, I will say Amsterdam, 
the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely love. I love Amsterdam. <laughs> Amsterdam's a great place. In fact, we had a great guest on, uh, Jorn Klubin. Yes, uh, is is from the Netherlands. Yeah, that, that could, from he, Denmark. He could be spreading the word out there. Right out there with yeah, all, all of his fans out there, you know. His, so yeah. I, I I love the fact that we have listeners all over the world. It really is uh, terrific. Well, I love it, and uh, we do appreciate the support, everybody, and we do appreciate the emails. And once again, I, I'm gonna shill. I'm gonna say. Uh, leave us those five-star reviews if you think we deserve it and your your feedback and your comments everywhere you get podcasts. And I'm just going to say, we're number 13. We're number 13. We're number 13. I love it. Right on. <laughs> and now let's get on to some more hip-hop hoorays into the news. Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. All right, Dave. We've got some news coming in. As always, we scour the internet for the latest pop culture news. And this one starts out with Disney. We have a new name to succeed Bob Iger as the chairman of the, or the chair of the board. I almost said chairman. We should say chair of the board. Yes. And, or uh, chairwoman. Chairwoman, chairwoman, if you will. Yes. Right. And this yeah. starts here at the end of the month when Iger is set to leave Disney. It's an end of the era, end of an era officially, with Susan Arnold, a 14-year member of the board, as a new chair who will be replacing Iger. Dave, can you uh, give us a little a little uh, history on Susan Arnold or know a little bit about Susan? Yeah, she, she's been on the board of directors of the Walt Disney Company since 2007, and uh, she's very well respected. She's, a, she's what's considered an outside director. Uh, she's, uh, you know, doesn't hold an officer position or a, uh, until now uh, didn't hold an officer position at, at the company other than being on the board of directors. And uh, she has uh, in the past had executive positions at the Carlisle Group, uh, Procter & Gamble, McDonald's, uh, and a company, NBTY Inc., uh, formerly known as Nature's Bounty. Uh, and I think this is great. Listen, this is the first time there is a woman as the chairperson of the board of directors of the Walt Disney Company in its 98-year career, wow. uh, or excuse me, 98-year uh, history. Uh, and so, uh, I have to say, um, this is, this is, you know, part of the smooth transition that they're doing. Uh, and as much as I'd love to see Bob Iger, uh, stay with the company for another decade, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these transitions are inevitable, uh, and, uh, you know, she's highly respected and, and Iger speaks very highly of her and, was was pleased with her appointment as the board chair. So um, I think this is great, and we'll see what happens. So for the uninitiated, you and I are both in companies that have had, you know, the you know chair people and CEOs and and all that in the the structure. Does that mean that she is Chapek's boss? How does that work? Yeah. So essentially she, she, uh, would be, uh, uh, one step above, uh, Bob Chapek. Uh, 
Um, you know, she's chairman of the board of trustees. Uh, I was almost going to say board of trustees, but she's chairman of the board uh, that is, uh, you know, oversees uh, the entire corporation. And uh, Bob reports to the board, Bob Chapek. Mm-hmm. And the board, the board really, uh, as a group, uh, take where Disney is and helps move it forward into where they believe the company should go overall. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, huge strategic investments and things like that go up to the board level, even, you know, building a, um, you know, a new resort down in Walt Disney world, uh, you know, where they're going to spend three or $400 million or a half a billion dollars. Those things go up to uh, board level. Um, uh, for approval, uh, you know, buying a billion dollar cruise ship, that isn't just somebody saying, okay, let's buy it. Let's spend a billion bucks on a cruise ship. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a lot more that goes into those kinds of decisions. And there's a lot more people at the company on the board level weighing in on that stuff. Yeah. When it comes to funding and the checks and balances, you know, Chapak yeah. will say, this yeah. is, this is why we want to make this you know, move. This is all the the background regarding it. Board, would you approve this project for funding? Right. Right. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, I think you know, in the past, there's you know, there's been uh, periods in the company where you had uh, uh, you know somebody like Michael Eisner, who was uh, the chief executive officer and chairman. Uh, of, of the board. And I, I kind of like the fact that they have that role split between two people Hmm. because it does add more checks and balances to, to the operation of the company. Right on. Uh, And well, we look forward to seeing all the moves that she's going to make along with Bob Chapek here in the future. You know, we follow that stuff very closely here on the show. Uh, Another thing we follow closely is the box office. And Dave, it looks like uh, by all counts, the movie industry is bouncing back. We have had awesome box office returns for Eternals. Ghostbusters has been a huge hit. And now Spider-Man No Way Home has crashed Fandango and all other services out there. So uh, tickets for Spider-Man No Way Home were supposed to go on sale Monday at midnight. Uh, which I guess is Sunday morning, I guess. So when Monday morning hit and Spidey, Spidey fans around the globe were shocked and uh, like me, were trying to get their tickets online. And then all of a sudden services around the globe crashed. Regal had crashed. Um, Fandango had crashed. AMC had crashed. So what are they to do? The Internet was ablaze. Dave, is this a sign that things are on its way back? Yeah, I, you know, I definitely think so. And, uh, you know, look, you know, those people who are predicting the death of the movie industry or, you know, the at least theater going part of the movie industry, uh, I think are wrong. Uh, I think people do want to go out and especially... Look, we're we're starting to uh, close in on two years of this pandemic, and all the you know the shutdowns and restrictions and the social distancing and everything. I think people are 
just get into a point where, come on, let's just go out there and, and, and enjoy ourselves from time to time. And look, I have to say, I'm cautious when I go to the movie theaters. I generally will go to an IMAX theater to see a film. Uh, it's a higher ticket price, but there is usually less people in the theater than if you go to a regular uh, screen. Uh, and so that's, you know, part of my being cautious and, you know, wearing a face mask uh, indoors and things like that. But I have to say, um, you know, you're only going to, you're only going to increase attendance going forward as the pandemic eventually subsides behind us. uh, People are going to be more apt to be going out instead of sitting on their couches, which, you know, is a double-edged sword for a company like Disney. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of people who want to see these Marvel films and Star Wars films in a big, you know, theater on a big screen. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, the company is trying to grow subscribers uh, for its streaming services. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I think that's, that's going to be great um, for everybody. Ultimately the window from theater to streaming releases has narrowed, I think, uh, Encanto, uh, which has kind of been the, the quiet, uh, uh, movie that Disney has in the background is, is getting ready for streaming. And, uh, I think that looks to be a really great film, you know, much like, uh, I enjoyed, uh, Ryan, the last dragon and so many other things that hit Disney plus, uh, uh like, uh, Hawkeye. For example, and Dave, have you have you even seen Hawkeye yet? I have not. I've okay. I've had a crazy week, yeah. and uh, some of the things that I actually wanted to watch, I haven't watched. And the 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 big the the big uh, watch for me was over Thanksgiving with the Beatles documentary. Yeah, yeah. And we talked talked about that last week, and uh, you know, I I since then I've been up to my eyeballs in uh, uh, trying to get some projects finished and things. So. Um, um, which I'm hoping the audience is uh, happy about because I am working on some new book projects and we'll talk about those in the new year. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, yeah. there, there's plenty of material out there for us to sink our teeth into. Oh, I love it. Well, um, talking about sinking teeth into different things you know they just released all these character posters for spider-man no way home as once again the internet breaks anytime spider-man um happens Mm -hmm. and and it's great to see that you've got dr octopus you've got the green goblin as well as electro with jamie fox in there they all look great i can't wait for some of these classic movie villains can you believe it's been 20 years since the original toby Maguire spider-man with sony was released with marvel it's it's unbelievable and you know i I was so happy to see Doc Ock back uh, and uh, Molina. Yeah, Alfred Molina. Uh, yeah. Alfred Marina, Molina, he's just a fabulous actor. He's just uh-huh. such a great actor. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it is great to see him. And the, the aging is really, really good. And to see uh, Jamie Foxx, and there was a big hint at uh, Jamie Foxx and uh, Tony Stark's arc reactor that they put out. It, hey, look, it's out there. It's not a spoiler if they put it out there. And uh, Green Goblin, too. And uh, to do the Green Goblin, you know, just I I can't wait to see who's underneath, you know, um, because we we know that that is coming from a a different universe. And, you know, um, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's great to see William Defoe back into the fold, hopefully in some way. And we'll see William yeah. Defoe because he's a wonderful actor as well. And other, uh, other things that they're teasing. In fact, you know, I'm biting my tongue, Dave, because, you know, I'm working on, on a particular project and I can't say anything about it, but I've already seen the new movie poster, uh, for Spider-Man and I can't say anything about it. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. You know, Hey, you know, let's, let's not spoil it for anybody. You no, know, no, we're, we're definitely not going to spoil it, but I tell yeah. you another thing that, well, I am looking forward to Spider-Man. No, no doubt. Um, the other thing I'm looking forward to is DC, you know, uh, during the break holiday break, Dave, uh, wife and I did see suicide squad, uh, the latest suicide squad for DC on HBO max, which was amazing. And it looks like we have another DC hero, uh, who's playing both sides, working with Disney as well as, uh, Warner brothers and DC. And we have now the rock with a first look at him as black Adam in the DC, uh, cinematic universe as it will. And he looks great, you know? So, uh, we're looking forward to seeing Dwayne, the rock Johnson, um, doing his work with DC and, uh, in the Shazam movies and the black Adam movies, if you will, for, for that. And he's, he's buff as all get out, man. I love the rock. Oh, he's always buff. <laughs> <laughs> he's always great. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, more of black Adam. And it looks like, uh, that will be dropping. Oh, when is it going to be dropping in July of next year? So, uh, a nice little tease there from the rock. So you can follow the rock on Instagram and you can see a little bit of a preview of what he's going to look like. Speaking of looks, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was going to say, speaking of The Rock, uh, I saw a wonderful video. Maybe you've seen it. It went viral uh, of The Rock giving away his uh, uh, Ford truck, his oh. Ford pickup truck. Yeah, it was great. Uh, uh, it was really terrific to see that. And I, I thought, what, what an incredibly nice guy to do that, you know? Well, once again, The Rock does give back. I've got tremendous amount of respect for The Rock and, and Dwayne Johnson as a human being. But, you know, he found out he was uh, doing that, uh, oh, what, his film uh, uh, reveal, I guess, who was doing some kind of a film preview for an upcoming project. And mm -hmm. he just went out and saw that there was a guy, a uh, deserving guy, ex-Marine, uh, former Marine, I should say. And he, he uh, I think he had some, um, some medical issues, but he's giving back to the community and gave his pickup truck away, man. What a heartwarming story. Love that. Yeah. It was, it was really wonderful to watch that, that video. Yeah. And um, I think he'd do it. I think he'd do it. Uh, the rock would do it. Uh, even if the videos, uh, videos weren't running in the background because he's just a nice oh, guy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Uh, and, uh, I have to tell you, speaking of, uh, reveals and, and new things to look at, uh, the new scream movie, uh, posters, uh, have come out, uh, yeah. with, uh, they feature the main cast. So they've got several different, uh, movie posters. I gotta love those, uh, that scream face. I know? do. I'm a big the, fan. The scream the, mask. Well, what, this is what I love, Dave. They're bringing the original cast back. So it's going to be exactly where they left off in 2011 when Scream 4 was there and they brought Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette. If you haven't heard about it, they're the, you know, Ghostface is back. Who knows what's going to happen? But the original cast is in there, uh, albeit more seasoned, but man, looking great. I can't wait to see it. Uh, and uh, so we're going to get ready to see the rest of Scream when it launches into theaters only on January 14th. Um, that looks great. I can't wait. Big fan of that franchise. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, in sad news, another, uh, I'm a big fan of this gentleman in, in this TV show, Laverne and Shirley's Eddie Mecca, uh, actor who played Carmine, the big ragu, had passed away Saturday in his home in New Hall, California at the age of 69. Dave, uh, you know, huge fan of uh, Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days. Uh, it definitely was much see, much watched TV for me growing up, and I love the big ragu. Yeah, no, he was a great character. He was, uh, you know, one of those character actors that, you know, you would see from time to time. But he is known for uh, Laverne and Shirley and uh, very likable character. Uh, I, it's very sad, you know. I mean, 69, that's young by today's standards. Mm-hmm. He's a, yeah, his, uh, his uh, cohorts there, Cindy Williams, uh, had had uh, made little tributes um to Carmine and, and Eddie Minka as well. Uh, my darling Eddie, Cindy says, a world-class talent who could do it all. I love you dearly. I miss you so much, but oh, the marvelous memories. And uh, Michael gotta, McKeon also weighed in. Yeah, absolutely. He said, uh, a sad goodbye to Eddie Minka this morning, a genuinely good guy and purveyor of cheer. Whenever things got cheerless, value these people. Rest in peace, Eddie. So... Yeah, that's, you know, Michael, Michael McKeon and Cindy Williams are really sort of the two stars that are left from that show. The two big stars, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, and Michael McKeon, you know, he's in a lot of stuff. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I have to say he, he plays, uh, he plays the brother on uh, better, uh, better call Saul. Yeah, he's still he's still out there, but he's never stopped working. And Michael, yeah. you know, whether he worked in, uh, you know, definitely comedy actor, he's worked with a lot of the cast members from uh, Saturday Night Live and and um, had worked in. Um, oh, gosh, uh, this is Spinal Tap, right? Yeah. I mean, the guy is is prolific. He's, uh, in yeah, the comedy he really role. is. He's a, he's a terrific actor. Absolutely. Well, you will be missed the big ragu. You're going to make heaven a, a, a much more happier place as a result. And uh, definitely will be missed for all the fans of your work. And now, Dave, it's time for us to get in with our great interview. Uh, we've got a round two with one of our, our favorite guests. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that we have our annual book show with John Kane maker. And, and I have to say that because we have been on the, uh, on the air now with our podcast for over a year. And so we're at that place where we can do our annual holiday book show, uh, where we talk about book shows, uh, where we talk about books, but, uh, anyway, I'm rambling. Let's just get to our, our friend, John. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. All right, Al John. Once again, we have John Kanemaker. He's an author, an animator, a professor, and an Academy Award winning filmmaker. And he's back with us uh, again this year. I think this is becoming an annual event because this is our book show. So, John, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm getting to be a habit. That's right. And we love it, you know, but I have to say, John, this is always the time of year, you know, when we start to get close to the holidays that, you know, it's the perfect time for people to purchase books and to give books as gifts, because to me, books are uh, an experience, uh, especially when you get a good book. 
And, yeah. and so for, for that, I, I kind of feel like we do an annual book show because now it's going to be annual because this is our second time doing it. <laughs> Great. I'm glad to be, uh, be part of it. Yeah. Um, shall we start, uh, talk a little bit about uh, some books? Yeah, let's do that. Uh, you know, I've I've read a stack of books this year, and they're all over the map. And I and I have no doubt you you have too. So you tell me where you want to start. Well, actually, I'd like to start with your new book. Ah, my Claude Coates book. Okay, let's do that and get it out of the way. There, oh, you got a, you got a beautiful copy. John is showing me a copy that uh, uh, we sent to him. There it is. Fantastic. No, I, I really uh, was impressed with the book. It's it's a it's a beautiful book to begin with, and and my compliments to your wife Nancy, Nancy Levy Brost, who uh, yes. a terrifically gifted uh, layout artist and uh, and a designer. It's a it's a wonderful book. It it reads well. I mean, the the research is amazing in it. I didn't know uh, a great deal about Claude Coates. Uh, uh, but you've really filled me in on a lot of details, not only on his um, his work as a you know the well-known uh, background designer at Disney. You know he worked on Fire Brigade and Pluto's Judgment Day and the Old Mill and everything from Snow White through um, Lady in the Tramp. I yeah. knew that. I mean, but the details that you got into. I mean, I didn't know he was six feet six. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. And, and you know something, when I first met him, you know, I, I'm a six foot tall guy, but when I met him in the commissary at Imagineering, I, I looked up at him. I mean, he was a tall guy. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, Diane's husband, Ron. He was like yeah. a mountain person, you know, a person that you looked up to. But uh, but besides that, I mean, you, you got into the uh, the whole thing of him becoming an Imagineer. That was a really uh, a, a very interesting story because he he got into it through luck, didn't he? I mean, uh, it was yeah. I, I, th I think there was a little bit of luck to it, but I also, you know, I, I have always said, and and I don't know how you feel about it, but I think Walt Disney, I think one of his greatest talents was that he was a great casting director. He could see in people things that he, he knew he could do that, that the person could do that they didn't know they could do. Yeah. Well, I think he certainly did that with, uh, with Claude Coates. I mean, he came in and said, uh, the people who are supposed to do the Mr. Toad's ride have, you know, failed to do it. And uh, you guys do it, meaning Ken Anderson and uh, and uh, Claude Coates. And they did. And then little by little, he kept using him uh, to create uh, attractions, rides for uh, Disney uh, Disneyland. And uh, then he became an Imagineer. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's sort of an interesting thing because it was a bit of a transition. You know, it, it was Walt asking him to do, you know, the model for Toad's Wild Ride. And then once he had the model done, ask him to paint some small, uh, uh, you know, backdrops that went into the model. And then Claude thinking, well, that's, you know, a guide for the art director who's doing that. And he was happy to do it. And then the next thing, you know, Walt coming in and saying, those guys can't do it. I need you guys to do it. So then he's all of a sudden painting these giant flats that are going to go inside that attraction but but he's also working on other things you know he's he's doing you know um uh, he's finishing off uh the uh, illustrations for the uh, lady in the tramp golden book he's doing 
other backgrounds for some of the shows that were in production that were going on. But there, there was this sort of definite transition period that happened, you know. And you, you make a nice gallery of his paintings at the end of the book, which is, which is quite beautiful. I, I was very impressed by the Machu Picchu. Yes. 1974, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. And uh, magical in its own way. Yeah. And, and, you know, the the one thing that we wanted to do was we wanted to try and put as many of his paintings in there and and we we put them in chronological order so that the the reader can see his painting style transition from those beautiful watercolors that he was doing in the 1930s into his acrylic and mixed media work. You know, Uh, so there there's really almost like six decades represented uh, of his paintings. I was interested too in the uh, the haunted mansion uh, section as well, um, and particularly <laughs> this uh, rumor about a rivalry between uh, Claude Coates and, and Mark Davis, which apparently was not true. But uh, it's funny how people, you know, come up with things like that. Well, and it's those urban legends that just become, it's almost a telephone game where they just get perpetuated by people who really aren't that informed on it, uh, on the topic, but they've just heard these things over the, you know, over, over a period of time and they just become more, um, fantastic, uh, as, as the stories are relayed and, and we really wanted to, uh, tamp down, and, and basically tell people there wasn't an issue, you know, and, and really what it boils down to is that when you, you know, John, you know, this, when you get four or 500 artists together to, to work on an animated film, every one of those artists has their own artistic sensibilities. Yes, of course. And, and, and you would do something different than how I might do something. Uh, but we can both appreciate what each other's doing. Yes, and, and I can't imagine, based on what you've written about Claude Coates, anyone who is more mild-mannered and got along with people. And the same with Mark Davis. Everybody loved Mark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we really wanted to, we made it a point to uh, uh, sort of set the record straight because, you know, Claude and Mark were friends. Um, uh, uh, Claude and Evie and Mark and Alice had gotten together and, and, you know, they socialized together outside the studio and traveled together and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a it's a wonderful thing you're doing. You're you're preserving uh, information about people that really should be known, yeah, uh, uh, more widely in in animation history and in uh, in the Disney oeuvre history of that as well. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And uh, I will send you a check in the mail. No, (laughs) but, but, but there's been so many terrific books that have come out and and not just on animation. I mean, I, I've read a number of books uh, uh, over the past couple of months. I I read one, uh, the, the taking of Paris, uh, the epic battle for the city of lights, uh, which begins with, uh, you know, world war two and the Nazis uh, invading and, and, capturing Paris and, and takes you through to the allies uh, liberating Paris. And, and I, I, I thought it was a fascinating read uh, and, and one that I really enjoyed because I learned some new things about 
um, the metro stations in Paris, some of the metro stations are named after uh, French resistance fighters. Uh, who were considered heroes during World War II. And, and so it was just interesting to, to read about some of the battles leading into uh, uh, the conquering of Paris. Uh, it, it was really a wonderful history book, really. Sounds great. Sounds great. Uh, I've been reading three books at the same time. I have <laughs> a Gemini on steroids. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I like to pick up a book and, you know, find something to, to read and interest me and then put it away because I don't want it to end. I want it to, I want to keep on, you know, coming back to it. And one of them I've, I've uh, found recently is um, a book called the rise and fall of the dinosaurs, a history of the lost, their lost world. And it's a, it's a terrific book. It's um, it's, a, it's by a paleontologist uh, named Steve Brissati. And, um, he, it's it's a terrific book because it gives you context to the rise and fall of the dinosaurs. He talks about the global dominance, you know, that they had for over 200 million years. I mean, can you? Wow. And then the shocking, you know, relatively sudden demise 65 million years ago. So we haven't been here <laughs> as long as the dinosaurs. And I'm kind of scared the way we're going. We're not going to be either. But uh, Brusati, you know, brings us uh, along on fossil hunts. I mean, you're right there with him as they're discovering, you know, these bones. And he talks about paleontologists in the past, historical ones as, con- as well as uh, contemporary ones. Uh, one of the first ones, I, I mean, I dived right into the uh, chapter on tyrant, liz- you know, lizard king, the tyrant dinosaurs, because I, I love the uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. Sure. And... Uh, he, uh, he talks about the guy who discovered those bones for the first time. And it was 1902, mm-hmm. a man named Barnum Brown. And he was a bone collector, a young, you know, 30-year-old guy uh, that was sent by the Museum of Natural History. And that's still here in New York. And that's, if you've seen Windsor McKay's Gertie the Dinosaur, you've seen Windsor McKay in live action coming, going into that museum and looking around for uh, the dinosaurs. But... Barnum Brown um, in 1902 was, you know, digging around in uh, in East Montana, and uh, he came upon some of the largest bones that were ever discovered up to that time. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it took three years to dig. Uh, they packed up the bones, they cleaned them up in New York, and uh, by 1905, they were able to show these bones uh, in, you know, completion. And it turned out to be the Tyrannosaurus Rex, the first time that it had ever been uh, shown to people. It was a great sensation. Barnum Brown became very famous. In fact, he, <laughs> he not only discovered more dinosaur bones, but he also worked at the Disney studio briefly when they were doing Fantasia. Mm. A consultant on the Rite of Spring for the uh, the design of the uh, the dinosaurs. Yeah, and uh, I wonder, uh, you know, because I wrote a little bit about this in the Claude Coates book regarding uh, the primeval diorama and the T-Rex and Stagosaurus that, uh, you know, there, there was a uh, outcry about the uh, uh, authenticity of those two dinosaurs at, living at the same time. Exactly. They yeah. did <laughs> well, they they didn't, but there was there was a uh, a, a relative of the uh, the I think it's the Allosaurus. Oh, 
Uh, yeah, which was a relative of the T-Rex. So, yeah. so, but, but the bottom line is it's a T-Rex and a Stagosaurus. So they took some liberties. Listen to him. And I think it's because, you know, Hollywood likes couples to meet cute. So they, <laughs> which looked great with the Tyrannosaurus who looked even better. And they, uh, they went at it. Now is, is that dinosaur book? Is it illustrated? Uh, illustrated. Yes. Uh, not great. Not like a, not like a uh, Claude Coates book, like a Claude Coates book or any of your books. It's it, or even in my books, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's illustrated with uh, photographs and some um, you know diagrams and, and stuff like that. So it's uh, well worth getting. It's a wonderful book. Interesting. Very nice. Um, you know, one of the other books that I, I read this year was Wild Minds by Reed uh, Mittenbuehler. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, you must have. I reviewed it for the Wall Street Journal. Oh, okay. And you liked it, didn't you? Yeah, I, I did. I, I liked that he credited where he got everything. I mean, it's kind of a book that was cut and paste from just about everybody who was an animation historian yeah. in the book. But he credits everybody. So I love it when, you know, books have notes because sure. then more research and you can find out where they got their information. Go to I, I, that's not excerpted, but the real, the real yeah. thing. What do you think? I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a really good read. Uh, you know, I, I liked his voice and, uh, and I loved the stories. I loved the weaving of all of these names that, you know, anybody who's involved in animation knows, you know, Pat Sullivan and, you know, um, uh, the Fleischer brothers and Walt and, you know, Windsor McKay and, and, and the, you know, what struck me most though, uh, John was, the choices that um, Max Fleischer made and the choices that Walt Disney made and how, you know, uh, Walt rose to stardom and Max Fleischer really sort of faded out uh, uh, because of some of the business choices he made. No, that was a, an interesting part. There were a, a number of, um, you know, errors in the book. Uh, and I think people have been pointing it out on online and, and elsewhere. But uh, I agree with you. It's a rather breezy, um, you know, uh, survey of, of, uh, of the history of, of animation. Yeah. I mean, really how, how the, uh, the, the animation business uh, as we know it uh, really sort of started the infancy of it and how it came about. And there was some great, uh, great, great stories in there. Uh, but, but, the, you know, again, I would, I would recommend people to read it. I, I did see a couple of things that were not uh, correct, but um, I wouldn't ding the book too much for those because I think overall it was, you know, uh, really interesting stories. Yeah. Um, another book that I've been reading uh, off and on, and it's it's over 900 pages, which is why it's, again, <laughs> one way this is taking so long. It's called Ninth Street Women, and it's by Mary Gabriel. It's a little brown book. was published in 2018. And uh, it's a fascinating book about five women who dared to enter the male-dominated world of um, 20th century abstract painting, not as muses, but as artists. 
and uh, it's a really a riveting uh, page turner. It, it has an intimate knowledge of these artists' lives and and uh, the male artists as well who were there. But mostly these five women were, who were overlooked, uh, who played an important part in this new American art and school of painting. And among them are uh, Lee Krasner, who was also the wife of Jackson Pollock, mm-hmm. the first celebrity couple of abstract art. And uh, Elaine Cooning, who was the wife of uh, Willem de Kooning. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, Grace Hartig, who was a very bold painter, who abandoned life as a as a suburban wife and mother to become an artist. Uh, Joan Mitchell, who came from a privileged background, uh, but uh, had a stifling childhood um, and uh, had a very fierce vision. And Franken, uh, Helen Frankenthaler, who launched a new school of painting, which was the Color Field School. I remember seeing Frankenthaler's paintings at the Nodler Gallery back in, say, 2008. My friend uh, Beth Howland, the actress Beth Howland, and I went to see them. And I remember walking into the gallery and being just saturated, literally saturated by the colors, the the way that the paint was uh, applied there, some of the canvas, the raw, raw canvas was showing, but the colors were extraordinary and they were all sort of floating there on, on the top of the canvas in some way. It was an extraordinary experience. But that's the sort of thing. This this um, author describes, uh, you know, the process of being an artist. And uh, one of the quotes that uh, I thought was quite interesting was from Grace uh, Hartig, Hartigan, uh, who said, uh, when she faces the blank canvas, as you face the blank paper when you've animated or or as computer animators face the, you know, the black blank um, screen she said you are inside yourself to make a world it's a terrifying experience an unknown and to pull out of your experience to try to make something is is really part of the struggles of the creative process and i think this book gets into the inside here and really gives credit where credit is due to these yeah. i you know i was going to say uh, uh is it helen uh, uh frankenmuller no uh Helen Frankenthaler. Frankenthaler. Um, she she had a major show in the last few years, didn't she, at one of the museums in New York? I remember seeing uh, a piece on one of the news magazine shows. Yes, I believe she did, yeah. Yeah, so they're starting to get their due now, uh, and they're starting to get the recognition that they, uh, they, they so much deserve. Yeah, and in a way, it's like Mary Blair is now yeah. getting enormous... Uh, publicity and her paintings are selling in the, you know, $10,000, $15,000. Yeah. That's quite, quite interesting. Um, Do you have another book you want to talk about? Yeah. You know something, I read a very interesting book and it's called uh, Hemingway's Boat by Paul Hendrickson. And Paul Hendrickson, I believe, is a Washington Post reporter. Uh, And uh, he wrote, and this was a hefty book, John. This this was a 650-page book. And and I have to tell you, I was attracted to it because I I, uh, had brought a couple of books with me up to Maine uh, this past summer. And uh, and I plowed through those books and I, I went into a shop and I saw this book on the shelf uh, and I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I'm up here in Maine and there's all these, you know, boats around me and everything. I, I, I want to read about Hemingway's boat, but 
it was actually more of a biography that sort of talked about Hemingway and his life revolving around the boat that he bought. Uh, and and uh, I, I thought it was just a, a very fascinating read. Of course, it talks about the history of the boat that he, uh, he uh, uh, bought in the early 30s and goes into, uh, you know, he was an avid sportsman. And one of the big things was, you know, doing fishing uh, in the Gulf Stream down off of Key West where he lived and up in the Bimini Islands uh, in the middle of the stream. Uh, and, and, you know, fishing for, you know, the big, uh, trophy fish, you know, the sailfish and, uh, uh, those kinds of the Marlin, uh, and that's what he was going for, but he also did, uh, you know, some scientific research for the Philadelphia Museum of Natural History and was, was tracking migrations and species and things like that. Uh, for the museum. So it was a very fascinating uh, uh, look at Hemingway's life. And, and throughout all of these years that the, the, the author is chronicling around the boat and the fishing are all of his uh, novels that he's writing, huh. you know? So I, it, it was just, it was a very fascinating read and I, I really enjoyed the book. I'd recommend it to anybody who's interested in Hemingway, um, you know, fishing, uh, boating, uh, it, it sort of has a little of everything in there for, for people. That's fascinating. I'm going to get it. Um, it. Does it talk about the art of writing itself? It, it doesn't really, but it, it talks a, a little bit about uh, him, uh, you know, having writer's block or, you know, uh, going on a tear when he, he starts writing something. Uh, so it, it talks, it talks uh, about writing in the terms of how he dealt with it and his relationship to writing. Well, because the other book, uh, the third book that I'm reading at the moment is How to Live or Life of Montagna by Sarah Bakewell. This is published in 2010. All of these three books are paperbacks, so they're available and easy to get. But Michel de Montaigne was born in 1553, and he died 59 years later, and and he wrote essays. He was basically a 16th century magistrate in um, Bordeaux, France, and he was a wine producer and merchant, uh, and he lived in a chateau with staff and servants. But he, he also was what we would call today the original blogger <laughs> hundred years ago because he created the art of the personal essay between 1572 and 1592. He didn't write about war or politics or religion. He didn't try to teach or preach or explain anything. In his 107 essays, he merely asks himself questions. He asks himself, especially how to live, not how one should live. He was not interested in what one ought to do, but what they did. Yeah. He was like a free-roaming writer of his thoughts and personal experiences. He's, he's considered the first modern individual who wrote about the experiences of being human. He wrote about friendships. He wrote about smells, thumbs, diversion, experience. Um, he's really the most human of writers. And that's something that 21st century readers find interesting about his work. I find it fascinating. He, he talked about getting over the death of a loved one, uh, which, you know, is, is something everybody seems to be doing uh, <laughs> because of COVID. Um, 
he talked about dealing with fanatics. He talked about uh, making the most of every moment that you live. Um, I just found it uh, fascinating. He said, don't worry about death. He had a near-death experience when he was in his 30s. And uh, he, he recalled as he was being carried, you know, from the accident to his uh, home, he, he, he was bleeding, bones were broken, uh, but he was in a, a sort of a, a, a kind of a coma, uh, but it was a, a pleasant coma, as he recalled. He, re, he recalled the near-death experience as, as being um, uh, something that just will take you away easily. He said, if you, it's a quote, if you don't know how to die, don't worry. Nature will tell you what to do on the spot, fully and adequately. She will do this job perfectly for you. Don't bother your head about it, he wrote. <laughs> he also found value in aging, which I was quite uh, interested in. Uh, he saw aging as an opportunity to recognize one's fallibility in a way that youth often finds difficulty. You know, when you see your own decline in body and mind, he said, one accepts that one is limited and human. And so if you learn to live with the imperfection, you can even embrace it. I think even Marge Champion, my, my friend uh, who was a model for Snow White and a great yeah. star at MGM, uh, she said, uh, don't think about what each decade takes away from you, but think what it brings to you instead. So she was sort of Mon Montagna-esque <laughs> philosophy as well. He had an empathetic ver uh, ability also to see things in, in another person's eyes. And even in his dog and his cat, he wondered what they were thinking. It's, it's really fascinating to read his stuff. And, and this book goes into questions about how to live and questions, uh, you know, and his answers about some of the possibilities. That's, that sounds like a really fascinating read. Yeah, yeah, I, th I thought so. I, I read a, 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 another book here that I, I want to mention is called Gossip Men. J. Edgar Hoover, Joe McCarthy, Roy Cohn, and the Politics of in, uh, Insinuation. Uh, and it was written by Christopher uh, Elias. Uh, and uh, it, it's a new book that came out earlier this year, but it's very interesting to, to read um, uh, about that period in in the uh, you know the nineteen late nineteen forties after World War II when the when the uh, Iron Curtain dropped across Europe uh, and and the the Red Scare and communism and and you know the Dyes Committee and you know McCarthy was just coming into Congress so it wasn't McCarthyism just yet that that would come in the early fifties but. Uh, um, you know, it, it really was an interesting read from the standpoint of the politics. Uh, and, it, you know, the title says it, the politics of insinuation. They didn't have, you know, concrete evidence on some of these people. They just insinuated that they were communists. Uh, and that was enough to actually blacklist or ruin some of these people. No, and they just went ahead and ruined a lot of people's lives. They really did, uh, and, and and it's it's not it's not unlike some of the stuff going on today. You know, uh, we're in a new McCarthy era. If you see what's what's going on in Washington, literally McCarthy. 
Yeah, it, it really is. So yeah. I I thought it was a timely. I'm sorry. What what was that, John? Nazis are back too, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah, every uh, what's old is new again, you know. And uh, uh, but you know, it's uh, it was an interesting read, uh, and, and to to really see the parallels from then to now. Um, uh, but uh, but my gosh, I, I mean, there's there's so many great books out there. I wish I had more time to read a lot of them. Yeah, I do too. Um, you know, but the, reading these books leads you to other subjects, other topics, and uh, you know that's always good as well. It really is, and, and, and I I think it gets the wheels going uh, for ideas for future books. Um, yeah. You know, th- things that you know you, you may want to work on or or uh, uh, think that would make a good topic. Uh, I I think there's there's so many uh, great aspects of. Uh, uh, of the animation world that can still be written about. I think you should be writing a book on, you know what? <laughs> I know you keep telling me that, uh, you know, someday I'm going to do it. I think, you know, it's, I, I think I'm going to have to put it in the queue. You don't want them to think anything dirty, but it's a special effects because. Yeah, you no, absolutely. And, 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 and you know there there's a there's a tremendous amount of uh, effects artists uh, who really helped develop the craft uh, back in the 30s and 40s that uh, to me um, have have not been written about or really acknowledged other than uh, maybe a mention of their name someplace you know but but very little uh, you know uh, uh, from that standpoint so I I think that you know I've I've said and I don't know how you feel about this i've told people there are thousands of stories that could be written about disney and animation that and 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 fascinating stories that just haven't been told yet absolutely a lot of people i mean i would find them fascinating the reason they're not done is because they're not known and people you know don't buy books that they don't know what they're about or who they're about well, you know, that that's interesting because like with my Claude Coates book, I was told that nobody knows who Claude is, you know, and I kind of felt like, well, if you tell a compelling story uh, about somebody who worked on all this magnificent, uh, you know, films and theme park attractions, uh, people who are fans of those films and theme park attractions are going to go, oh, my gosh, I know that name. You know, he worked on Pinocchio or he worked on Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I want to read about him. Yes, but I guess the, the larger publishers will not go for it because they want volume. But no, you know, the, these are the certainly, you know, they, they want books that are going to sell 500,000 copies or a hundred thousand copies or whatever it is. But uh, still, I think that there's a market and, and I can tell you, by the way, for the Claude Coates book, it, I would not be surprised, but I think the first print run is nearly sold out or will be sold out uh, by Christmas. Uh, so to me, you know, if you read statistically about the book industry, they say the average nonfiction book only sells three to 500 copies. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? The Claude Coates book blew that out of the water, you know, because we, we, I know the book has sold a tremendous amount. So, uh, and it's going to go into a second printing. So, you know, the bottom line is uh, that I, I think people are relying too much on um, individuals making decisions about which books get made. And those are people who don't know 
you know, there, there was a major publisher who, you know, the, the sales force said, well, we don't know who Claude Coates is. How, how do we sell that book? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we shouldn't do that book cause we can't sell it. And you're like, what? You, know? you sell it to hardcore fans. And that's the great thing about where we're at now is that there are pockets of fans that share the same mindset that want to know more that are thirsty and hungry for these type of things. And they find podcasts, they find videos, they find everything they can and consume it and they get around and then they find people like yourselves and they buy all they can. Well, I, I, I have to tell you, I've gotten some lovely notes from people uh, on, on my past books. And John, I'm sure you've gotten the same. Uh, and there is an audience out there uh, that is hungry for these kinds of books, you know, and, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be made. Uh, but again, I think, you know, with some of these publishers, they, like you said, John, they're just looking to do tremendous volume. Well, get on that special effects book. (laughs) 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 Al John, what have you read lately? You know, it's funny. Before I get into that, I will tell you that you can pick up John Canemaker's book at finer bookstores around you because I I know a lot of Disney fans out there that bought the Mary Blair book. So I think Uh you can go out there and pick that up as well as also giving a plug for the very rare the very rare now Raggedy Ann and Andy book, which you can find right now for around eight hundred dollars uh, for a first edition hardcover. I just wanted to put that out. Isn't there. that amazing, John? That is that's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. I'm not getting any of that. For this <laughs> it's time to reissue that book. Oh, um, yeah, as an NFT, a oh, non-fungible yeah. token. That's it. That's it. Well, I um, appreciate you asking, Dave. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I spend my time in the rock and roll realm, in the music realm a lot, and have befriended a lot of great people. And Mark Weiss, a photographer extraordinaire who did a ton of uh, rock and roll photography over the years. And he put out a, a great book that is co-authored by Richard Beanstock, who's also an awesome uh, rock and roll writer, along with a for uh, afterward by Eddie Trunk, um, you know, DJ as well as VH1 video uh, host and Rob Halford uh, as well. And this is the decade that rocked the photography of Mark wise guy Weiss. And you can yeah. see a bunch of those as well as great stories from the 80. 80s, uh, the decade of decadence, if you will, photos, great stories there from Guns N' Roses to Joan Jett to Van Halen. So you can uh, definitely check that out. Uh, And then I'll also follow that up by yet another great book, uh, also by Richard Beanstalk called Nothing But a Good Time, uh, which is in there as well. So I was going to I was just going to interject here, Al John, and say, do do you feel like there's like one rock and roll photographer per decade because you know we we talked last week or a couple of weeks ago about Mick Rock yes. uh who is a rock and roll photographer who really dominated the 70s mm-hmm. he still shot into the 80s and 90s but his his big decade was the 70s and and your friend his decade is sort of the 80s yeah absolutely i mean you know you look at you look at uh those photographers and they really did have all access to those different places those different decades if you will you know so um so yeah definitely definitely i I believe that and i think you know once again um you know photography and those types of uh those kind of art books are just absolutely amazing i mean we just had a as i mentioned a uh uh, ross halfin 
documentary we put on Gibson TV called Through the Lens. And, you know, Ross Halfin also has amazing book out, books out there of his work and the way he stages photography and the way he shoots bands. I mean, um, anyway, I could go on and on. But, yes, every decade has just a prolific, um, you know, rock and roll photographer that has all access. John, do you know who the first uh, photographer uh, when the Beatles came to America was there a first photographer, uh, someone who stayed with them for a long time and, you know, when they were first coming to America? You know, I believe so. And I think um, one of them was um, Robert Freeman. Uh-huh. And uh, Robert Freeman had a lot of the, um, he was an English photographer, but did a lot of those type of uh, photographs mm-hmm. from back in the day. And you can, in fact, you mentioned that. And I just, you know, literally just called him up and tried to uh-huh. see if he had a book. There, so. there's a there was another photographer and I and his name slips my mind at the moment, but his son is managing uh, the uh, archive of negatives. Uh, but he shot the Beatles quite a bit on their first uh, tour of the U.S. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, uh, there are a bunch of a bunch of those, um, and I'm trying to think offhand. Uh, Jerry Chatsberg, he did a bunch of. Um, I uh, did a bunch of photos, especially in the New York area. Uh, Bob Dylan comes to mind. He did, I think he did shot a couple of, uh, of Bob Dylan album covers as well. Yeah. So just yeah. A, a couple of those, but absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that stuff. And I love to, to get not just art, but also photography and frame it and, and put it in different places, but definitely check that out. And, um, and for a, a couple, a couple things, I also wanted to get some parents, parents out there, you want your kids to to have some really light reading, and uh, these are a few things I think uh, the parents could check out. Be more Captain America. Lessons in leadership. <laughs> it's ten bucks, and they're really cool things that you can put on your kid's mantle, right? So, uh, for example, uh, here's a quote from Captain America from Marvel Comics: "If you get hurt, hurt him back. If you get killed, walk it off." Captain America. You know, attitude goes a long way. No one wants the Avengers to come up with a bunch of dubious excuses or for them to watch Thanos make half of the universe disappear and then say, oh, well, you win some, you lose some. Heroes say stuff like, let's do it or I'm going in. And they mean it. Learn to make inspiring, sometimes bold remarks. Uh, Hey, your public expects it. So that's an interesting read. And then also light reading. Uh, Here's a book called Star Wars. I love you. I know lessons in love and friendship. <laughs> All right. And so of course this is about uh, on the cover princess Leia and Han Solo. And so there's a, a couple different things I think kids can learn here. And it says, learn to say, I love you. All right. One come, um, one comes from royalty. The other's a pirate, but Han and Leia don't let their different backgrounds and communication styles get in the way of their romance. Some scruffy looking nerf herders may show you They love you before they actually say it out loud. They might even show their love by offering you the last bite of their favorite snack. And while more likely to give your partner lavish compliments or write them a love letter, the key is to stay tuned for what the other person needs. Remember, what's really important is that you both feel loved. So there you go. Light reading for the kids. We we need a lot more love in this world. That's for sure. No kidding. Yes, that's (laughs) what it's all about. And and more Beatles songs, you know, from the vault. So come on, let's release more Beatles songs and documentaries from the vault, shall we? John, I'm I'm curious. I want to ask you, and and Al, John, I'll ask you this, but do do you have a collection of books that you've accumulated over the years? And, and, And 
for me, like I, I've got bookcases in a couple different rooms of the house. Uh, and we have a library. One room is actually a library. And then we have bookcases in a couple other rooms, including my office. But I just love buying a beautifully crafted book and not only reading it, but going back and referencing it from time to time and having that on the shelf in my home. I mean, how do you feel about that? I, I agree completely. I, I uh, you know, love, you know, different uh, things uh, and, and like to, you know, have the books there if I want to reference something. And uh, it's not just animation books, but it's, it's books about nature and, and uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. And all sorts of, uh, all sorts of um, subject matter. No, it's, it's great. Somebody said you, you should, uh, if you get, acquire a book, if you buy a book, you should give two away. It's difficult, though, isn't it? You want to just hold I, I, I have to say it's, it's very difficult, uh, you know, to give away books that you've accumulated over time. I have no problem giving away my books. You know, I, I, I get a supply of books, so I'm, I'm happy to send books out to friends and uh, just as a gift and say, hey, here's my latest work and I hope you enjoy it, you know. Um, so, you know, that that's kind of how I look at it. But I'd be hard pressed to guy. I tried it once, by the way. You know, we, we our, our uh, library, the bookcases in the library were teeming where we were sticking books into, you know, every little nook and cranny and sitting them on, on top of books and stuff. And, 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 and we tried to go through and, and, and sort of cull out books that, you know, we, we felt like we could give away. Uh, but it was tough. I have to say. Books are well, like I albums. You know, I feel like um, when you have a good book, it gives you that snapshot in that time of your life. And, you do like to reference them. And I think they also form, um, you form a relationship with a book. You have a lot of comfort that you can take in when you get a good book. And uh, yeah, it's difficult, but I do feel like books are some of the most thoughtful gifts you can give someone. Yes. Whether they want them or not. <laughs> Is that a strong hint, John? Have you ever tried to give a strong hint uh, to someone? It's like, maybe you should give this a read. <laughs> I mean, being being that you're a professor, I'm sure you, you've come across a lot of students that I think could benefit from, you know, having you set aside and say, you know, maybe you could give this book a read. It might help you a lot. I do. I do. And I, I have a lot of books in my office and I'm starting to, you know, deaccession them by giving them to students and just, uh, you know, letting them. You know, form their own opinions about them. Absolutely. You know, I'm I, I'm curious. Um, uh, you know, because we, we we have a very diverse audience that's global. By the way, John, we have a global audience for this podcast. We've we've got listeners in Taiwan and the UK and Australia and South America. So uh, I'm 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 always being asked by people. Oh, uh, you know, I have a 15 year old or a 16 year old, and they're interested in animation. Do you have any books you can recommend? And one of the books I always tell people to get is Frank uh, Thomas and Ollie Johnson's The Illusion of Life, Disney Animation, because it walks you through the whole process and philosophy of Disney classical animation. Uh, uh, and, and we've talked on our show about the Walter Foster book, uh, you know, Preston Blair's The Art of Animation. So, uh, but do you have any favorites that you recommend to students? 
Yes, I, I think in terms of technique, uh, the uh, the Richard Williams uh, book, um, you know, an, an animator's um, survival kit. Yeah, quite essential. Um, I like uh, you know several of the um, you know uh, history books, uh, including the, the the Walter Foster book that you mentioned, the Preston Blair book. Yeah. And Knowledge, of course, is is a is a superior book as well. So yeah. I recommend those. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the the Richard Williams, uh, they also did, I think, a a, a DVD series of the book as well, yes. uh, of his lectures, uh, which, which I think is now available, like for digital download. Uh, but but I I mean I knew Richard, you knew Richard. Um, I, I mean what a, what an incredible talent he he was, uh, and, and what a mark he left. Yes, he was he was quite amazing as a draftsperson and as an animator and you know just a great down to earth person. I I felt you know I yeah. had a relationship with him for about thirty years. You know, I I remember him telling me uh, when he had a studio on Soho Square in London. Uh, he 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 told me we had a whole conversation about this one day, but he was telling me about how he just loved to go and sit out in the square and just watch people walk and and the types of walks. He just went into this whole you know, description of different kinds of walks and different gates that people have and the, the quirkiness of, uh, uh, of how, how we as human beings walk. Uh, well, a documentary in which he is there in Soho Square watching the people and then he's commenting on them and he's also uh, scribbling over them and you can see the walk going and he says, well, that's a march walk there, that's, it's 12 frames and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's really worth, uh, you know, a lot of documentaries on the making of animation. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a, what, what's your favorite uh, on the making of animation? What's your favorite documentary? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I just showed uh, the uh, Frederick Bach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, he's interviewed and then they show clips, uh, you know, of his his films and uh, in class yesterday, I showed that that particular one as, as well. But you go onto YouTube and it's it's terrific. To yeah. you, wonderful, wonderful source for all kinds of information, all kinds of uh, demonstrations of animation and uh, and such. People can you know ana- you know educate themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frederick Bach did uh, the man who planted trees. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was the river or oh, uh, crack crack was the other one crack yeah, and which, which uh, got the oscar also he got two right. oscars yeah times and he got two oscars it's absolutely amazing to to watch his short films uh, they were beautifully done beautifully executed yes yes yeah. well there we are yeah, I think we uh, got uh, a lot of information packed into this show. There's some wonderful books. Uh, Al John's going to be putting uh, the links up uh, and uh, you guys can uh, uh, find that in the show notes when when the sh- uh, uh, when the show is up. Um, I, I don't know. I, what are you looking forward to for the holidays, John? Are there any films that you're looking forward to? <laughs> I've just seen about 84 uh, films, uh, short films, animated films for the Academy because I'm yeah. 
remember. So uh, I've seen quite a lot. Well, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> I got the link in the mail to in the in an email today, and I I'm going to have to slog through a lot of that. Did you find that there was a lot of good material? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which is typical. I mean, you know, I think our audience should know because uh, John, you're an Academy Award winner, and you're in the Academy, and you vote on the Academy Awards in the animation branch, and I do the same. But um, there there's what's called the um, uh, the bake-off, I guess, is a kind of uh, uh, one one description of it. But you you get all of these entries, and they have to boil it down to uh, just a handful. And out of that handful, they actually get the nominations. So so the handful is really the bake-off yeah, to get the nominations. Yeah, the short. The short uh, list, as they call it. Yeah, the short list, and uh, uh, but but you have to go through all of these other animated films, and and, and they're shorts. But a short is is, is anything under forty five minutes. I think a little less than that, but I'm not sure. A lot of them are about eighteen minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are just too long. Yeah, way too long for the story they're telling. <laughs> but there, but there's also gems in there. Yes, absolutely. Just, there really are. Yeah. And, and you don't know it until you kind of start to chomp through and watch them. And, and I'm, I'm actually glad that they're allowing us to stream uh, those shorts through the Academy portal. Uh, and watch them uh, in in the comfort of our homes, as, because years ago we'd have to go down to the Samuel Goldwyn Theater for like an entire day, and you know, and it was sort of like you know, on some of the longer ones, you, you if enough hands went up, uh, uh, they'd stop it and move on to the next one. <laughs> I was always I was always fascinated by that process because I figured at this point in time that you'd be able to get all of the links to all of that stuff to to view it because it seems to me like uh, it, it, that is a process. That is quite the process. <laughs> it is. There's also uh, the, the fact that um, we enjoyed getting together in person and uh, we miss that here in New York. Yeah. The Canadian contingent would come down because they always had a lot of films and still do, uh, you know, in the competition and uh, we would all have dinner afterwards. So, it was a very social thing, and we kind of missed that. It was over a two-day period. Yeah. Same same out here. I mean, you know, when you go to those screenings in person, you, you know, it's a chance to catch up with, with folks. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, being uh, in this pandemic for the last 18 months or so, um, a couple weeks ago, Nancy and I actually went to a gallery. It was a it was a Saturday, one night only. George Scribner, who directed um, Prince and the Pauper and uh, who directed uh, Oliver and Company. Uh, and he he's an imagine he became an Imagineer. Uh, he's a, he's a prolific painter. Uh, and so he had a one night only gallery show for charity. It was, it was it, the, the money raised from the paintings he sold was going directly into an art Institute that was helping children uh, with art. Uh, and uh, we went to that and it was like a class reunion. 
you know, Don Hahn was there and Gary Trousdale and, you know, all of these different people, Sonny Apichapong and, you know, Barry Atkinson, all these folks that we hadn't seen in, you know, now almost going on two years, you know, 18 months plus. And, uh, and it's wonderful. What's that? Put some pictures of that on your Facebook page. I, I did put I put a couple pictures up. Where, there was a picture of George and I uh, in front of us, you know, a board that had information about his Panama Canal paintings because you know George uh, did an eight year um, uh, painting. Uh, uh, um, uh, what, what's the word I'm <laughs> grasping for here? He had a commission. He had an eight year commission to paint the expansion of the Panama Canal. You know, they did the wider canal next to the existing original Panama Canal. Uh, and George went down there, you know, five, six times a year and painted over an eight year period. And so he's got 40 paintings uh, uh, that are going on display at the National Gallery in Panama uh, in May of next year. So uh, he had a few of those paintings there. They weren't for sale, but he was just showing them and sort of letting people know that the gallery exhibition at the National Gallery in Panama uh, was going to be happening. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, it, but it's so true when you get together with, uh, when you go to those kinds of events, they do become a, um, a, a very much a, um, uh, you know, a reunion of, of friends and people that you haven't seen in a while. Well, I want to wish you both a happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely. And I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving and uh, we'll see you soon. I want to thank you for being back on the Skull Rock podcast to do our annual book show hint hint john i'll be tapping you next year uh, <laughs> and, and hopefully i'm going to see you in person uh over the christmas holidays i hope so too thank you so much thanks guys all right see you soon bye-bye john Bye. skull rock podcast to infinity and beyond exploring the outer reaches of the disney galaxy Magnificently. Always fun to have Mr. Kingmaker on the show. I love John Kingmaker. And you know something? I, I will be visiting with him over the Christmas holidays uh, when we're in New York. And uh, he's just, a, he's a terrific friend and he's a wonderful person to just sit down and chat with. Um, you know, and I, I, I just really look forward to getting together with him uh, whenever I go back to the East Coast. I love it. Absolutely. And so many great recommendations for books. Um, if you're just starting your journey into art or animation to please check out the links, we're going to have um, a, a little, I guess you could say a little uh, uh, wish list of different books that were mentioned throughout the uh, course of the show. So you can please check that out. Um, and then of course, also adding uh, Dave's book list as well, you know, um, pick up yourself something nice for the holidays is what I'm saying. I would agree. Treat yourself. You Treat know yourself. you want to. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> Don't deny yourself the opportunity. Uh, far be it for us to deny you of anything. We do have some awesome shows uh, coming up in the weeks to come, especially for the holidays. And, um, you know, we, we just can't wait for you to just once again, just uh, listen to us and enjoy and open up uh, some great surprises in, in the form of the Skull Rock podcast. If you love the show, 
Once again, you stumbled upon us, please subscribe. We do appreciate you supporting the show on every podcast platform. Follow us on those social media links as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, be sure to send us those emails. Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com and Aljohn at SkullRockPodcast.com. Dave, it's all you. Well, as always, Al John, peace and love to everybody out there. Um, you know, we're going into the holiday seasons and, uh, you know, just slow down a little bit. Take your time. Enjoy yourselves. And we will look forward to having you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast is made possible by listeners like you. We'd love to thank Charles, Lindsay, Spencer and Joshua. To support this podcast to sustain future episodes, visit anchor.fm forward slash Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.